we love to uh, turn everything into a public project that then becomes privatized <laughs> in future years, right? <laughs> so hopefully this won't be another uh, another one of the long, another several projects in the long history of, of Canada's capital destruction of, of, of public money. But, you know, we do have to think long term and how we're how we're going to do this. But it's exciting at the same time. This is Pipelines and Turbines, the podcast that explores the hidden side of North America's energy with Jason Switzer, Lior Rothschild and Dan Zilnick. Welcome back to Pipelines and Turbines. I'm your co-host, Lior Rothschild. I'm joined by Jason Switzer. And we are very lucky to have an amazing friend and guest that we've invited to come on the program and do this end of 2022 look back with us, Janet Ainsley. Janet, welcome to Pipelines and Turbines. And please, you know, for those of you who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, Lior. It's great, great to be here. I am the Chief Sustainability Officer at Quitno Energy, a publicly traded energy transition company that's currently producing natural gas and oil. But we also have about two gigawatts of power projects in the queue, uh, including about a gigawatt of solar and another uh, gigawatt of natural gas fired um, is how we see the energy transition, at least initially unfolding. Uh, couple, coupling that, of course, with CCUS, we're very pleased to have been awarded to the Carbon Hubs in the last government of Alberta round. So we've got a lot on the go over here at Quitno. For those of you that obviously have been listening to this program for a long time, you'll know that CCUS, a term used many times before here, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, but uh, just for any newbies out there, wanted to make sure we're keeping it simple. Yeah, I feel like I, I that's my first acronym. I feel like I should put $5 or something like in the swear jar. Um, <laughs> yeah, but totally yeah nice. thanks, thanks for that. That's right. um, bringing to this role, I come to it with a background. I actually know Jason from early days at Shell Canada. Uh, Jason and I both worked in the oil sands uh, development area there. And uh, we won't even say how long ago. Uh, that was Jason. But it's very interesting. I think he and I reflect often just how uh, the discussion on things like climate and Indigenous reconciliation, you know, um, hasn't moved maybe as thought as, as far as we thought it would. Uh, if we were sitting forecasting 20 years ago, Jason, that we would be here today, I think we would have thought we would make uh, much, much more progress than we have. And I think probably the most interesting thing about my background, Lior, though, is not, you know, really Shell or working at CAP, but the fact that I was the chief of staff to Canada's Minister of Natural Resources uh, when the Trudeau government was first elected. And, you know, I think we we dealt with a number of contradictions there. Uh, we put a price on carbon at the same time as we moved some big energy projects forward, including uh, pipelines and, and LNG. So, um I think contradictions and trying to resolve those is probably a theme of my career so far. So uh, I think there's lots, lots of that we can talk about today. Awesome. And um, I think you probably see why we wanted to invite Janet to be our, uh, our third co-host for this particular episode. Jason and I often get into policy conversations and have absolutely no business doing so. <laughs> so we are not qualified. So it's really great to have somebody who 
also understands some of these same sustainability issues, has an interesting background in energy, and also really understands that policy world at least a lot better than we do. So great to have you. And I don't want to belabor too much because what I want to do is dive right into this idea that we're turning the chapter on a really big, critical moment in time. 2022 was this year that was the first year that we started to come out of a global pandemic, a major war in uh, Eastern Europe, and all kinds of other incredible breakthroughs in technology, in sociopolitical issues around the world, and certainly in the world of energy, sustainability, disclosure. I'm curious, Janet, from your point of view, what would you say is the biggest story of 2022? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big question. Uh, probably the biggest story and its uh, repercussions and ripples for certain is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, not just the madness that is Vladimir Putin and the horrendous uh, atrocities on the, the civilians in, in Ukraine, of course, but just you know, well beyond that, the 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 changes in how we now think, not just about energy, but as you know, we think about industrial policy and the future of our of our economies, of our communities, and you know how we're going to rebuild. You know, as you you spoke about the pandemic, but you know, don't want to just use this cliche, uh, but how we're going to build and how we're going to build back better in a new way that kind of envisions uh, a future where we can um, not only be living a very high quality of life, but, you know, I think reflecting on what that means over the longer term in truly a sustainable type of way, a sustainable way socially and a sustainable way environmentally as well. So I think it's a good, it's been an interesting year. It's been a good year for reflection and, and really thinking in that long-term way. I don't think we've had the real moment to do that uh, in the past uh, couple of decades. So I think we're at an inflection point. I think that's a great point. I, I guess if I was to pick a story that, you know, obviously follows from that, it would be the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, a sort of last minute magic pulling a rabbit out of a hat with the U.S. Congress to, to pull that off, which I think, you know, so Senator Joe Manchin and his team had been reluctant in spite of the fact that the Democrats had majorities in both the House and the and, uh, Senate. And this this big policy that had to get over the line in order to actually do this build back better concept that had started as a three trillion dollar package and by the end got watered down to about about you know half a trillion dollars, which is still more than any uh, U.S. government has ever spent on climate. And maybe what's most interesting about it is the set of tax incentives that it creates across a range of emerging technologies, including things like CCUS, fusion, and other you know advanced nuclear. And, many other emerging uh, renewable or net zero power sources and and the extent to which this is going to ripple across not just the U.S. economy, but but globally, you know, took the U.S. from uh, a sort of laggard to a leader in all this and, and really set the parameters of a kind of reshoring of a lot of the manufacturing and a lot of the sourcing of key minerals and other resources that are necessary to support transition amongst not just the U.S., but the broader OECD countries. Um, so as the world is kind of splitting up because of the Ukraine invasion, at the same time, we've got uh, the U.S. kind of forcing a, a, a conversation and action 
in both uh, Canada and, and across the OECD and in particular in Europe around what they need to do now in order to maintain some control over the intellectual property and the, and the opportunities, the economic opportunities associated with transition, even as China continues to grow its renewables and clean tech sectors incredibly rapidly. Yeah, really interesting examples that both of you have brought forward. So starting with what Janet said about the war with uh, Russia and Ukraine, you talked about some of the industrial fallout. It directly relates to what you were saying, Jason, about the Inflation Reduction Act. Because there, there's a pile of money going into clean tech, renewable energy, and all kinds of things. That is this the moment that we say, wow, between the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., and the invasion in Eastern Europe, this was the moment that the world sort of embraced renewables as the future in a big way. I think it was more than fairly or anything, not just renewables. I mean, it's it's had a, a real um, effect. It's caused European uh, policymakers to look at where they get their energy from and examine all their sources um, and, you know, rethink their suppliers, re- rethink those from not just an environmental perspective, but from a human rights and a and a political stability perspective. And, you know, that has really great effects in here in Alberta and in Canada, because I think, you know, we are a very um, strong supplier, you know, strong regulatory standards. The industry has really in the past five years, I think also embraced, you know, that it, it can reduce methane. It can achieve the goals the government has set out, not just 45, but 75% methane reductions that can move forward with carbon capture use and storage. And uh, I don't think Biden would have been able to do the Inflation Reduction Act if it, if it wasn't for Putin. I think it just, like you say, just supercharged his ability to reach across, you know, political lines to actually, you know, bring, I think, some of the environmental base on board that you have to also work with the fossil fuel sector in order to, to move ahead. So I think, it, you know, the two are absolutely tied together. Okay, but let me let me be the naysayer on this one, Janet, because it's fun. And, and the reality is, I mean, you know, all of this action on climate kind of requires political stability that, you know, it's going to become a heck of a lot more expensive to decarbonize if China is not part of the mix. And, you know, when you look at what investments countries are making, I mean, to some extent, they're, they're looking at how they can deepen the renewable, but they're also looking at growing LNG supplies, um, you know, making large infrastructure investments that are going to need many decades to pay out. Historically, we've been very bad at, you know, shooting large industrial facilities in the back prior to the end of their economic life, right? We don't call it a grandfather clause for nothing. So, you know, really, do, do you think we're, we're accelerating decarbonization or are we, are we seeing a kind of swing in the other direction? I think we're accelerating it. Uh, and, you know, it, but it's going to be, it's a bit of a bet. Um, the bet is technology, right? And, you know, just what other, you know, disruption can can they stir up through this kind of wild experiment of, you say, you know, the, the billions and potentially trillions of dollars. And here in Canada, you know, net zero 2035 for the electricity sector was also announced in 2022. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take, you know, a lot of those kind of near-term safe bets to get there, of course, so the lights don't go out. But, you know, we also need to get moving forward with some of these, uh, you know, wild cards. How are we actually going to achieve this goal? So, yeah, and you know, and it's going to be, to your point, there's going to be a price, you, you bet. This is going to, you know, be expensive. And I guess what we'll see you know, as we look forward is, 
you know, how confident do we really feel? How does how confident does the government feel in making some of these policy uh, promises into things that look more like guarantees? And how does the how do investors feel, right? How do they feel about taking some risk with some capital? And we're really bad at that in Canada, aren't we? We love, we love to uh, turn everything into a public project that then becomes privatized <laughs> in future years, right? <laughs> so hopefully this won't be another uh, another one of the long, another several projects in the long history of, of Canada's capital destruction of, of, of public money. But, you know, we do have to think long-term and how we're, how we're going to do this, but it's exciting at the same time. Oh, I feel like we need to have a whole episode on what it's like to buy a pipeline, Janet, but, ah. but uh, go ahead. That would be a good episode. Uh, I have a question for you. So arguably one of the big stories of 2022 was COP27, which some people might say was a disappointment. You know, some people I've read and heard people say, it seems like we're losing sight of the 1.5 degree target. However, one of the huge outcomes of COP27, our convention of the parties, was the loss and damage agreement. This is the first time that after more than a decade of people trying to negotiate this, some of the bigger players like the US, China, and others have said, yeah, we need to we need to have a, a global system for any of us to move forward. And the developing nations are saying, if you want us to be part of this global system, you need to pay for the fact that we're the ones already experiencing the damage caused by climate change. And we're not the ones who have been emitting all the carbon. The, the large emitting countries have been doing that. We're suffering the consequences. You want us to make sacrifices to be part of this global regime around reducing emissions, making major investments. You need to put money on the table. And that hasn't happened until this latest COP that just happened in Egypt. So I'm curious, from your perspective, whether you think that is a, a significant breakthrough in 2022? What's the, what's the long-term implications? Uh, I mean, I think the loss of damage mechanism is a sort of overdue acknowledgement of, uh, you know, the, the kind of disproportionate, you know, uh, allocation of harm versus benefit associated with greenhouse gas emissions, right? So for a long time, uh, you know, large economically uh, industrialized countries like Canada and the U.S. and others have emitted and, and benefited uh, economically from that. And now we're kind of saying, hey, look, if you want to continue to grow your economies, you can't you can't do what we did. You're going to have to find a different path. And uh, by the way, we're not necessarily going to give you any money for that. So this has been a recurring theme and losses and damage is just another sort of piece to this around now paying for historical emissions and the damage associated with that to you know economies like low lying island nations and, and so on. I personally, I don't think I wouldn't call COP27 a win by any respect. Um, but I would I would point to and, and in particular, the loss and damage mechanism, which got very little actual money, certainly not a significant amount of incremental funding. And, you know, I would say, you know, remains to be seen whether given the fact that the developed countries have been so reluctant to put money into these mechanisms historically and have always kind of underperformed relative to the commitments they've made, that this is going to be some new win. Um, but I would say that um, there's mechanisms that are being set up right now to support decarbonization, uh, early coal retirements in Indonesia and South Africa, 
which I do think are meaningful because they are they are essentially a, a kind of blended finance mechanism for doing just what I said we don't do very often, which is uh, retire things before their economic life. And so, you know, I think if we can figure out how to make those mechanisms worth in Indonesia and South Africa, then we've got a real model for helping these developing nations decarbonize more rapidly. You agree, Janet? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's complex. You know, anytime you're getting into international mechanisms for anything, this is going to be, you know, not only a cultural um, complexity, but you're going to have a huge amount of, you know, political complexity, you know, at the high level, but also between countries, within countries. And so I, I'm reading a little bit more skeptical, I think, about how um, how effective we're going to be able to be to truly help more developing countries, as Jason says, uh, decarbonize. I think there's a lot of, you know, good that the that the world can do, that the UN can do, that other countries can bring. Uh, you know, as simple as regulation, like right? you know, as simple really as that, so that there is a, a a standard to which energy projects or you know other environmentally impactful projects are developed. I think we lose track very often in in Canada of just, you know, um, how the rest of the world works. And, you know, we've got uh, rule of law, we've got provincial, federal regulators. Um, you know, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we're we're pretty good. And so I just remain a little bit skeptical. And I'm also worried maybe at the high level about the choices that need to be made within those countries too, aren't for us to say in Canada or in Europe, you know, this concept of eco-colonialism you know, and the potential that we may be um, directing money to development projects that aren't in line with what um, local citizens, Indigenous people, other communities want. And so I think we have to be very careful. But, you know, I'd love to see it move forward uh, in a meaningful way, make some, certainly in the area of resiliency against climate change, so that, you know, um, these communities are not uh, forced to move or to 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 leave, or we don't see loss of life. But um, you know, I'll believe it kind of when I see it. When the UN, where the UN is concerned, I think there's so much more we can do as private citizens and even as business and uh, some of the large uh, foundations can do to really move things forward in a in a in a good way. I think that's pretty powerful. Eco-colonialism. I think that's a really interesting phrasing, and uh, yeah, one could argue that. Through that lens, loss and damage is a bit like a uh, reparation. Hey, um, what what did we miss? What what haven't we talked about that was a big story in 2022? Or maybe what else was a big story that perhaps others might have missed? Well, um, just because I'm such a nerd, I'll go back to the net zero 2035 clean electricity uh, policy, you know, goal from the government. It's not policy you know, yet, uh, but they are aiming to introduce regulation to that effect in early 2023. And I don't think people really grasp, you know, if you're not kind of Quebec or, you know, BC, how sweeping uh, the change would have to be in order to achieve those goals. Alberta is actually well positioned, you know, if you compare us uh, against, say, Ontario or Nova Scotia or some of those other jurisdictions are certainly uh, the north and how we would achieve what, what they've produced is a very a draft uh, performance standard, but a very rigorous one that, you know, really, you know, you, you could not achieve unless you were with natural gas, unless you were, you know, capturing at a very high rate. 
and what that's going to do to, to prices. So I think, you know, people, you see a couple of, you know, op-eds in the national news about it, you know, certainly Elon gets much, much more uh, attention. But I think, you know, this has been a bit of a sleeper that we've got to start paying attention to in the new year in order to really understand, you know, is this something that's achievable? And it's something certainly that we should aim for, but how are we going to get there in a meaningful way? And, you know, that's tied to all sorts of Fed prov issues um, and how we can work together to achieve some of these goals, you know, or as the case may be, not. Yeah, uh, that's a big can of worms, uh, especially as you talk about the uh, federal provincial relationships. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting what you say about sort of like adding that achievable lens to it. And what's your thought? Is is it not achievable? I think 2035 is going to be uh, is, is aggressive. Um, I don't argue that it should be achievable. I just worry that if we don't do it uh, in a in a smart in a very smart way, that we're going to see you know skyrocketing electricity prices, and uh, that would have you know obviously very negative impacts not just on all on all of us, but you know on the most vulnerable in society in, in particular. And so I, I worry that will create the political uh, instability or the opportunity for people to say that this is not the goal we should be pursuing at all. And, you know, it is, uh, you know, as you talk about the EV piece too, you know, we're in Canada, just a relatively small market. We're, you know, in Alberta, just a tiny, tiny market. So we're at the end of this very long curve of change. So we, we don't really have a choice. We're going to get sucked along on things if you, you know, GM and Volkswagen and Toyota, if what they're selling in 2030 and 2035 are going to be EVs, then that's what we're going to be buying. You know, we're not going to really have a choice. So, you know, we need to think seriously about how we're going to get ready for that. And it's not just on the generation side of power, you know, solar or wind or hydrogen. It's on the entire system, too. I don't think that's quite landed yet. Yeah, interesting, interesting comments. So I, I want to move us into 2023 predictions, but just before we do, you've both added a couple of really interesting reflections on 2022, and I just wanted to add one of mine because I believe that one of the very biggest breakthroughs that happened in 2022 happened towards the end of the year, and it was this incredible technological breakthrough around nuclear fusion. What was previously science fiction is now a realistic opportunity for unlimited waste and emissions-free energy within our lifetime. Of course, there's still a long way to go to, to actually get this technology to be commercially viable and, uh, and mainstream. But I, I guess there's three things that I see, and I just want to get your reaction to it. That the breakthrough may have, and this builds on what you were just saying, Janet, around the 2035 Canadian goals, that it has the potential to really amplify and put out like a rocket pack on the back of the electrification of everything. So if, if we're building infrastructure 20, 30 years out, why wouldn't we build it? in a way that enables uh, this new technology, once it's more readily available, to have a distribution network so that everybody could benefit from it. That's kind of one thing. The, the other thing that I'm really curious about is so often, and, and Janet, you you talked about this at the outset, when you talked about uh, some of your company's position on 
natural gas. I think I think it is a really viable thing to say that natural gas is an important bridge fuel. It, it is essentially a sort of backup system to the renewable energy system. But if we're talking about nuclear fusion coming online within our lifetime, does that compress the time frame in which natural gas infrastructure uh, has the payout? Like, is there more pressure for the infrastructure to like? have a return on investment before this new technology comes along and makes it less desirable. I'm, I'd love to get your reaction to my analysis. Well, I, I think the, the the fusion announcement was tremendously exciting. You know, one of the things I didn't mention when I was talking about my CV is I spent a very short, too short amount of time working at Queen's University and uh, I had the very special honor when I was there that, that Queen's uh, Professor Er McDonald won the Nobel Prize in Physics when I was there. And I got to uh, hang out with him for a couple of days. And so got to ask him all sorts of great questions about physics, like, do you think that fusion and cold fusion was possible? And he said, absolutely. You know, he also has told me a lot of things about dark matter that I didn't really understand, um, to be honest. So, uh, you know, all of these things are possible, but and I just don't know how near term they are. And that's the kind of the idea about any sort of black swan event or disruption. I, you know, we that's just, you know, the the reason that things are called black swan events is that they cannot be estimated from empirical, you know, observation because they're so rare. So, you know, whether or not we build out... I think one of our past guests, uh, John Elkinton, would call it a green swan event rather than a black swan. There you go. I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, But, you know, the the idea is that we have to to move forward incrementally with the technology that we have. We have to do the safe bets. We have to, you know, great report from the Canadian Institute for for Climate Change uh, that talks about safe bets and wild cards. And I refer to that all the time. You know, we've got some safe bets to get us to kind of 2030, 2035. And we've got at the same time work on these wild cards. And there is always the chance, you know, think about all the things that have just happened in our, you know, short lifetime. We've seen tremendous change around in the oil and gas industry around hydraulic fracturing. Uh, we've seen political events. I remember being at the IHS CIRA uh, conference with Minister Carr back in about 2015. And the uh, 2016, I think it was, and I think it was the Saudi oil minister said, basically, we're just going to open the taps and flood the market with cheap, cheap crude until you're all out of business. And that, you know, drove the industry to, to great um, measures to cut costs and, and, and do all sorts of things. So you'll see the same happen again and again. If it's not COVID or Putin or, you know, uh, Elon Musk, I think we just have to move forward the best way we know how knowing that we could have green swans that come out and that's a good thing. And, you know, whether or not we can pivot and shift, but regardless of the generation source, you know, I don't know whether cold fusion is going to be in my, in my cell phone or if it's going to be at a giant plant up near, uh, you know, in some remote place, like, you know, they built originally power plants near, near coal mines, right. Where they had coal seams. So I think we have to think about, you know, how that, new technologies and how distributed grids work, how demand uh, side management is going to work and how this is all going to link together. So there's lots of stuff we can do that we could maybe just plug and play a nice little cold fusion. Is this like back to the future? Is this a flux capacitor? (laughs) (laughs) I was picturing Doc Holliday reaching into the garbage (laughs) pile. 
Mr. Fusion at the back of the DeLorean. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I guess I, I'm going to be a little more critical on the, on the Fusion side because I think you know, what's changed is we when like when I was uh, a grad student, you know, we would talk about fusion and it would be this is something we need to invest in, along with all other sources of energy and that we needed to grow R&D in the energy sector broadly. That was you know, Professor John Holdren's kind of mantra at the time. But it was always, you know, fusion is 50 years out. I think now what we're saying is maybe fusion is maybe 20 years out in terms of a, a kind of commercial product. I guess the dirty little secret of interest rates, um, which I think everyone really understands at a high level, but but it, it you know in terms of how it plays out in terms of energy innovation, it's a bit scary. Since about 2008, the world made interest rates basically zero or even negative, and that meant that all assets were really um, productive, right? You could make money in almost anything, and so a bunch of money went into venture capital and into you know really like you know wild cards. There's a lot of money for wild cards. People are now pulling that back. Now you're looking for really safe things. Bonds are back in vogue. Um, and so the flow of money into risky things is by just the, the nature of markets is going to decrease. And so this incredible pace of private sector-led innovation is likely to slow down. So even while I think I'm very bullish on the growth of renewables, I think a lot of it is going to be driven by, uh, as Janet said, the safe bets. But I I feel like we're going to see a slowdown in the pace of innovation around some of these emerging technologies, except where government intervenes to make cash cheaper. And, and that's, you know, the big value of something like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. Um, and we really need to think about what we do systemically in Canada, because we tend to put money into, um, you know, beauty pageants, competitions you know, single winners instead of thinking more strategically about how we how we grow the the pace of investment in the innovation ecosystem broadly. Very well said, Jason. Like I was, that was going to be my my uh, that was my second choice. By the way, you guys, for the sleeper event of 2022 was inflation, but didn't want to bring everybody down. You can kind of already see in different pockets and inflation. You know, um, affects everyone a little bit differently, even where you sit in in the country. You know, um, I think Alberta, due to uh, certainly from my perspective in the energy space, is energy prices have gone up. So that's caused consumer inflation. And I experience it that way. But as a wage earner in an in energy industry, um, you don't you don't feel the pinch as much as if you were, you know, a public servant on a or a retiree on a fixed income. So I think not only in Canada is inflation going to be kind of unevenly distributed, which will cause a lot of concerns and issues. I, globally, it's going to continue to continue to also be uh, unevenly distributed. We might, we've done really well in Canada. I think we had the lowest inflation of all of uh, you know the the G8, and you know people complain about it here in the UK and in Europe. It's been it's been astronomical, and you can see the strikes and other things that are happening as a result. So. I think we're going to have a bit of a long road of the after effects of, of all of this, for sure. I think it's going to be a very difficult time politically for Western democracies, that the combination of this whole kind of war in you know Eastern Europe and, and uh, the split between China and, and the rest of the world. And um, yeah, just this, this sort of increase in costs for everything uh, is going to drive a lot of social instability, a lot of wild cards. I mean, Trump was a kind of a wild card, a black swan event in the U.S. political system. But we saw a similar thing happen just months earlier in the U.K. with the uh, Brexit vote. 
And that was during a time that was comparatively stable and easy. And so, you know, you can only imagine what kinds of uh, jokers are up the sleeve over the course of the next few years. Um, so that, you know, not not to be pessimistic. I mean, I, I think fundamentally I'm optimistic about how things are going to play out. Um, but but I, I think the wild cards are going to make action on climate and, and so many other things more unpredictable than they've been. Is Canadian democracy in trouble? And I ask this partly because um, we saw in 2022 the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, a similar act put into place in Saskatchewan. And in Ontario, we're seeing this uh, Bill C-36, which is essentially a pro-development strategy that the Ontario government is pushing, which is in the sort of like under the realm of uh, affordable housing, but looking at some environmental destruction along the way, lack of consultation, including with Indigenous communities. And then the leader of the opposition in Canada is somebody who has openly called for firing of the uh, chair of the uh, National Bank of Canada. Uh, Some pretty populist kind of positions. Is Canadian democracy in trouble in 2023? Going back to our conversation about those you know, tensions uh, around affordability, which to his political credit, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party really nailed. And Pierre Polyev rode that into uh, leadership of the Conservative Party, right? Um, I, I think there is every bit that that danger of, you know, kind of uh, rebattling of what we think are settled debates. You know, I would say that in Canada, we've believe that it's a settled debate that we have carbon pricing in this country. But I think with a polyev government, that's not necessarily the case. And I think that that, you know, the the kind of premier, the the level of uh, kind of power between the federal and, and, and provincial jurisdictions is another source of, of fighting um, that could play up in a really bad way for, for a lot of different things. But in particular, as, you know, we're focused on it around this climate and energy fund. Janet, same question. Yeah, well, it's a big question. Is Canadian democracy in in trouble? And I think as as long as as we as as citizens ensure that we get out and we vote, the no, and people become you know engaged and they participate, the no. But we um, we need to be ever vigilant. And um, you know, again, we we rely on a system of loyal opposition. And you know, we need to include other other parties and you know. There's no more important relationship that a than a premier will will have really than than with the indigenous peoples in uh, their province, the prime minister the same way. And uh, I worry that there's not the recognition of some of the roles we play in 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 the country that moves the country forward. You know, I read the other day something of you know, well, along the EVs, you know, we're not going to let kind of Justin Trudeau tell us what kind of car we're going to buy. Well. Frankly, we let the federal government tell us what kind of medicine we're going to get, what kind of food standards to what we put in our bodies on a regular basis. And that's not a bad thing. I kind of like that thing myself that, you know, I'm not going to the store and buying some brand of acetaminophen that's made in, you know, a way or in a country where they have or could be contaminated. Like we we have a good system of regulatory and at the same time there's kind of that overreach that encroachment into the sort of nanny statism that that i think in particular we and 
in the West um, pride ourselves as being, you know, independent and making our, our own choices, which, you know, I think is something that Trudeau and the and the team need to watch. And I, you know, I think there needs to be some shakeup. There needs to be some more sort of badassery. You know, the government I joined was doing some what I would call badass things. And I think that's where people like Pierre Polyev and they like Premier Smith because they're going to do some badass things. You know, we put a price on carbon. We approved pipelines. We did LNG. We did we legalized cannabis. We did, you know, assisted dying, right? Um, so there was lots of big sort of sacred cows that Trudeau, he threw all the senators out of the party, right? At a caucus before he was even elected. So I think we, we do need some very powerful thinkers. Uh, we just need them to be hopefully powerful in the right way, but in a way that doesn't also disrespect democracy. But, you know, everyone listening to this should just look at themselves if they think democracy is in trouble because it's, it's really it is on us. That's a great uh, call to action. We're, uh, we're reaching the point of the program where I want to introduce the lightning round, but let me just get it on record. Your main prediction for 2023, Jason. Main prediction. Uh, main thing to watch this year, yeah, I guess. Uh, I would watch uh, oh, there's so many things, but I guess China. So we just had this, this uh, third party Congress. Uh, she is in for another indeterminate period now. China accounts for one third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. It's uh, the largest financer of new coal power facilities, both domestically and internationally, particularly in the rest of Asia. It, on a more positive note, you know, the has indicated that by 2060 they will be carbon negative, or excuse me, carbon neutral. By 2035, that they'll peak their emissions. Um, they're going to build half of the world's global renewable energy capacity over the next five years as they work to double their their domestic renewables. And sure, that's not fast enough, but that's incredibly fast. And they have the largest functioning carbon market in the world, uh, just in their power sector. And, and it looks like they may extend that to other sectors over the next several years, too. So, you know, it, the the kind of which way China goes, goes the world on climate. So that's that's what I would be watching this year. Interesting. And Jen, your prediction or your main thing to watch in 2023? I'm going to go closer to home. I'm going to go on this net zero 2035 electricity uh, regulation to, to say that the government's going to realize and to try to set forward a much you know more specific and achievable path with the concrete measures, but that will add more, you know, just inject a lot more realism that there'll be much more understanding of what it takes, not only physically, but financially you know, in the 12 to 13 kind of digits of cost, I think that it would take to, to turn our, our system on such a dime. And um, so I think, you know, in the policy space, we're going to see a lot more concrete measures to to move towards that, but also an understanding that it's not going to be as as easy as, as it all may seem if you, you know, sit in Quebec and look out your window at, at some power lines that we've got a, a huge opportunity here but we have to do so carefully because of all the things we just talked about. You could cause a lot of, it could be a nation building moment, or it could be a real polarization an increased polarization for our country. And I, I think they, they will do something to make this into a nation building opportunity. Do we call that a green nation building opportunity? Or do you have a better name for that? I like that one. Green bridges and green swans. Green bridges and green swans. I, 
I'll add my prediction to the mix. A couple of years ago, we made a prediction that there was going to be a run on net zero targets by 2050. And we, you know, that was absolutely the case. Uh, I'm making the prediction in a similar way that I think that reconciliation action plans are going to be a significant focus for a number of companies in Canada. This past year, we saw TELUS, Ontario Power Generation, Enbridge, TC Energy, a few others create reconciliation action plans. Uh, there's a number of other companies that are in the process of doing so, but it's a long-term process. It can take years to actually develop the relationships and the vetting process to actually publicly communicate such a thing. I would say for those who aren't already started on that journey, get to work. It's, it's going to be something that is a basic expectation for all companies. And I predict 2023 will be a really big year for the growth and reconciliation action plans. And I think in particular, equity partnerships are going to be a big part of that. We saw in 2022, a number of Indigenous communities make some significant strides with trying to bid on infrastructure projects. So, for example, when Suncor was dumping its uh, renewable power business, uh, ACO picked it up in the end, but it, there was an Indigenous group that put a bid on it. And I think that's just a sign of things to come. Maybe they weren't successful on that one, but they will be on future ones. It should be part of every company's decision-making matrix of saying, could we empower Indigenous communities when we look to shift some of our infrastructure assets elsewhere? Okay, so I talked about a lightning round. We're going to do it really quickly. We're going to see how many of these we can get through. And Janet, Jay... Don't overthink this. So let me let me go to you, Janet, and ask you: uh, Who do you think is the was the biggest loser in twenty twenty two? Oh, biggest loser in twenty twenty two. Well, yeah, I think you know Elon Musk. I mean, as you know, there was some meme on the internet. Just you know, when you spend whatever forty four billion dollars of your own money, and then you know a month later post a Twitter poll that's like, do you like me or no? And then you get no. <laughs> so I don't know. That has to qualify you as the biggest loser. Uh, that, I mean, not just 2022, but uh, maybe a decade. That's pretty good rationale. Jason, who will be the biggest winner in 2023? Uh, biggest winner, uh, man, I'll, I'll go with net power. So they just did a deal with, uh, I think the last SPAC, set up by one of the biggest natural gas developers in the U.S. Uh, called Rice, just did a reverse takeover of uh, Net Power, which is a, a zero carbon natural gas-based power generation uh, technology play that's been scaling incredibly rapidly, probably the fastest new energy technology to come to market ever. And, uh, you know, and this, this acquisition essentially gives them a huge bag of money to start building projects all over the world, including uh, a couple that are proposed in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So we'll see what happens with net power. Cool. Last question. Christmas or Hanukkah? Make a case. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with, um, see, you know, I will say right up front that I am a, a Christian. But, you know, as a, a Christian, I have I have both. I can lean on both because I've got, you know, both both the Old and the New Testament to go with. So I think, you know, if I could do them both, I think that Hanukkah has more days to it. Um, but 
they're both fantastic holidays, but I celebrate Christmas. So diplomatic. Jason, Christmas or Hanukkah? I got to say, I'm, I'm still a fan of Hanukkah. Uh, I am Jewish. My kids have grown up with the benefit of having both, though, in our house, which is pretty great for them. They get gifts. They get latkes. They get it all. Latkes. Um, Ooh, I'll be right over. But, you know, the one thing I think Hanukkah really lacks is a great movie. How is that possible? You got, you know, James Cameron's basically done Avatar now twice. And um, and it's more or less the same story as Dances with Wolves. And I am so curious why you can't get this great story of, a, you know, a, a, a small ragtag group of rebels who who defeat an empire and uh, reclaim their 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 kind of capital city. You can't make a great movie out of but that. Ja- but Jason, if Die Hard is the ultimate Christmas movie. Then, then what would be the what would then would be the ultimate Hanukkah movie? I I, I think it's probably Star Wars, but but <laughs> it, it's interesting what you're saying. Yeah, so picking up on the Die Hard theme, like like a Ipikaye Maccabee, <laughs> you know, like it should be like a classic line that we say on every Hanukkah. Um, like you, uh, we celebrate both in in my home, and uh, yeah, feel so fortunate my kids get to experience both really really beautiful holidays um uh, you know both can be as commercial as you want them to be or as meaningful as you want them to be and that's kind of what's really beautiful uh, about this time of the year is that you create your own traditions and, and you celebrate it as a family and yeah really beautiful hey thanks for playing uh janet you're such a great sport really enjoyed doing this with you both both in terms of jumping in and uh, having no idea what I was going to ask in both <laughs> forcing you to make predictions, uh, reflecting on the year in the past, and uh, also be part of this lightning round. You are a great sport. Thank you, Jen. Well, it's so great to be here. You guys are so thoughtful and fun, and uh, I wish you a happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. And we, may we all have a very interesting and healthy 2023. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you and your family. And so, so Jason, you and I started uh, back in 2016 with this podcast. Obviously, uh, as we mentioned, Dan Zilnick was our partner in crime. And uh, I'm excited about what the year ahead will bring for pipelines and turbines. We're going to evolve and we just invite you, if you've stuck with us through this entire episode, stick with us through the next year. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be an interesting one. Uh, we recognize there's a lot of good podcasts out there and we're, we're fans of the medium. And so we're looking at how to uh, make sure that uh, we really um, fill the gap that's out there and continue to bring you really, really great topical and interesting content. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of this episode. Tell us what you uh, want to see in 2023 from pipelines and turbines and we'll do our very best to respond to you and, and actually incorporate your ideas into the program that's that's it for us make sure you have a wonderful wonderful end of the year and a great terrific 2023 we'll see you right back here have a good